IBN is proud to bring you the following podcast. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm TJ O'Hara, the principal political analyst for IBN, the independent voter network. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests so you can develop your own more informed opinion. My guest today is the Honorable David M. Walker. He is a distinguished professor at the United States Naval Academy and the former Comptroller General of the United States and CEO of the United States Government Accountability Office under Presidents Clinton and Bush 43. Mr. Walker has written a new book entitled America in 2040, Still a Superpower, A Pathway to Success. We're gonna discuss the serious question it poses as well as the solutions it offers. Dave, thank you for joining me on Deconstructed. Good to be back with you, TJ. Thanks for the opportunity. Now, your book examines the glide path of our country from today through 2040 and asks the question of whether we'll still be a superpower. And I found it to be very well researched, as expected, and initially a little dark because the trends aren't good. If we continue on our current path, you suggest that China's going to become a legitimate superpower well before 2040. The U.S. will be much less powerful in 2040 than today and both China and India will have larger economies than the United States in 2040. What do you see as the key metrics impacting our fate as compared to that of China, India, and other countries? Well, TJ, let's talk about what does it take to be a modern-day superpower. In my view, there are four dimensions. You want a respected country that has global economic, diplomatic, and military power, and that has significant cultural influence. And the truth is, since World War II, up until recently, the United States was the only country that met those criteria. The Soviet Union met the diplomatic and the military criteria, but it never met the economic nor cultural factors. But now we have a new emerging peer competitor called China. And I say emerging, I really should say re-emerging, because China has had the largest economy in the world in the past, It's also had the largest navy in the world in the past. And so they're basically re-emerging. And either they're already there as a superpower, or if they're not, they will be in the very short term. And if you look at what's happened since World War II, at the end of World War II, the U.S. was about 50% of global GDP. Now we're down to less than 24% and declining. The demographics were working in our favor. We had 16 people working for every person on Social Security. Now we're down to about three to one. We're going down to two to one. The dollar was as good as gold, and that's obviously not the case anymore. We were bringing down debt to GDP very rapidly from an all-time high at the end of World War II. Now we're going to pass the all-time high within the next year, and we're rising rapidly. We basically have grown government. We've lost control of the budget. And when you lose control of the budget, that's going to have adverse economic consequences, which of the four factors to be a superpower, economic power is number one. It precedes the other three, both on the way up and on the way down. So the whole idea about the book is it's a wake-up call, a call to action, a way forward. The 2040 chapter, the America at Risk chapter, talks about how things could be both internationally and domestically in 2040 if we don't change course. It's plausible, it's not predictive, and it's clearly not preferred, but it is credible. Has the United States lost control of its finances? There's no question that it has. For example, in 1912, the federal government was 2% of the economy. Before COVID-19, it was 21%. Stated differently, 
ten and a half times bigger. In 1912, the U.S. Congress controlled 97% of all annual federal spending. The only thing that it didn't control was interest on the debt, which was only 3% at the time. Now it only controls about 29%, and that's declining. And that 29% includes every express and enumerated responsibility envisioned by our nation's founders for the federal government, including national defense. And so there's no question that it's lost control, and it lost control before COVID-19, but COVID-19 has exacerbated our economic, our diplomatic, our national security challenges, no question. And in addition to these, we have growing gaps domestically that represent a domestic tranquility threat going forward if we don't address them. You and I have discussed in the past public debt to GDP ratio and how critically important we think that is. But there's a new post-Keynesian approach called the modern monetary theory, which seems to be predicated on the philosophy to borrow, borrow, borrow. What's your view of that theory? Well, let's talk about what it is. I mean, basically what the modern monetary theory asserts is that deficits and debt levels don't matter as long as you can borrow in your own reserve currency unless and until you have an inflation problem. Well, let me tell you what I think the problem is. Number one, it's a theory. It's unproven. It's contrary to history. It's contrary to long-established economic principles. It's likely to cause the factor that enables it, namely excess inflation. Right now we have very low inflation, but it's likely to cause it over time if employed. And probably the biggest concern that I have about it is, look, hey, the country was already irresponsible before COVID-19. Now it's worse. And you get some harebrained theory like this. I mean, that just enables politicians who don't want to make tough choices on the spending and tax side, you know, just says, well, what the heck, let's just let it roll. That's not in our interest, both as a country, nor is it in our interest with regard to current and future generations of Americans. And today we have what I would call an interest rate dilemma with the fictitiously low rates. What's your view of the impact of the current interest rate dilemma that we have? Well, we don't have market rates of interest right now. Let's be candid. The Federal Reserve is artificially holding down interest rates. It is buying virtually all of the new U.S. debt that's associated with COVID-19 in order to hold down interest rates. Now, why is it doing that? Because the Fed has three primary goals, to promote economic growth, to help with uh, employment levels, and to provide for modest levels of inflation or try to maintain purchasing power. We clearly don't have a problem from an inflation standpoint right now. And so, therefore, the Fed is doing everything that it can to help economic growth and employment opportunity. The problem is, is that what it's doing is short-term gain, but increased risk of long-term pain. That combined with the irresponsible tax and spend fiscal policies increases our risk of not being able to continue to be a superpower in 2040 and beyond. And the interest rate is the fastest growing cost in the federal budget, isn't it? Yeah, the fastest growing expense in the federal budget is interest. And what do you get for interest? Nothing. And frankly, it hasn't been growing as fast as recent years because interest rates are at historically low levels, despite the fact that we're adding huge levels of debt. At the same point in time, we cannot expect that these interest rates will last over time. And when they start going back up, then you end up getting a compounding effect. Higher interest cost, higher interest rates combined with higher debt levels gives you what we call in the South a double whammy, and that's not good. 
Dave, we're going to take a quick break and we'll talk about a few recommendations you have for the President of the United States when we come back. Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IBM's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin. Welcome back. My guest is the Honorable David M. Walker, former Comptroller General of the United States, currently a distinguished professor at the United States Naval Academy, and the author of a book that explores the question, America in 2040, still a superpower? Dave, under the assumption that Joe Biden will become the 46th president of the United States, you've had a few suggestions for him. Can you touch upon those? Well, I had three priority suggestions, and they're all of strategic importance. Number one, do what it takes to defeat COVID-19, but achieve a better balance between economic, public health, and individual liberty considerations. We have not achieved a proper balance there. We need to achieve a more risk-based approach focused on vulnerable populations, not a one-size-fits-all approach. And interestingly, even the World Health Organization has said that lockdowns are not good. So I think we need to heed that. We also have heard that we now have two vaccines that have 90 plus percent effectiveness, which is unheard of within record period of time. So we need to be able to get those things finalized and distributed. I think the president needs to lead by example in taking that vaccine and encouraging other people to do the same. The second thing that I suggested is this country has been a republic since 1789. It's never had a comprehensive forward-looking, integrated, outcome-based, and resource-constrained strategic plan. China has one. It's executing on it. We don't. We need a plan that focuses on the four dimensions of remaining a superpower, the economic, the diplomatic, the military, and cultural. We also need one that deals with some of our domestic challenges as well, including growing gaps, income, wealth, and education healthcare and a variety of other issues that we have to deal with. Thirdly, we need to recognize that Congress is not going to put our finances in order through the regular order. And so we need a new statutory fiscal sustainability commission that will learn lessons from the past Simpson-Bowles commission that will be able to look at our finances from a broader perspective, engage the American public on the front end with the facts, the truth, the tough choices, and then come back with a set of recommendations that will be guaranteed a a vote in Congress in order to facilitate making these types of decisions sooner rather than later and before we have a much greater financial crisis that not only will have adverse consequences domestically, but around the world. Going back to COVID-19 for just a second, you made a couple of other interesting observations in your book where you talk about the national security impact as well. And that's given very little dress treatment in the press. Can you speak to that issue? Well, one example of the national security implications in the short term is that CVN-71, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, or the so-called big stick, was forward deployed uh, trying to protect our interest in uh, the South China Sea with regard to freedom of navigation. A number of members of its crew contracted COVID-19 presumably when they ended up doing a port call in Vietnam, and it was actually taken out of action for several weeks. So that's the short-term example. The longer-term example is COVID-19 has made our already unsustainable financial situation worse. 
And what's ended up happening over the last several decades is the squeeze comes to so-called discretionary spending. And discretionary spending is that 29% that Congress controls that's declining as a percentage of the overall budget. And defense is half of discretionary spending. So that means that it's going to end up facing increasing risk in the world, security risk, multidimensional as well as a new peer competitor, changing alliances. At the same point in time, it's going to have less resources. For higher risk, less resources, that's a problem. Now, you also touch upon the fact that the definition of non-essential worker has varied by state. What's the economic impact of that uncertainty? Well, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is that the United States, believe it or not, was rated number one in the world in pandemic preparedness as recently as 2019. But obviously, we weren't adequately prepared. And there's lots of reasons for that. One of the challenges that we have in this country is that we have a division of responsibilities. We have a separation of powers. And it's not just a separation of powers between the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. It's a separation of powers between the federal government, state government, and local government. And the fact is the president cannot mandate, for example, that people wear masks. The CEOs of the states are the governors. They're the ones that are responsible for their states. And they're the ones that make those related decisions. And one of the challenges that we have is that some states had very harsh lockdowns, uh, one-size-fits-all approaches, where it took a long time to try to be able to reopen up their economy. And the bottom line is, is that when you look at the impact of COVID-19 in 2020 versus the impact of the coronavirus that occurred in 1918, which is the Spanish flu, we've had much, much fewer deaths a much, much lower death rate, and yet had much more economic disruption. For example, they didn't close the schools back then. Yes, they ended up canceling large events. Yes, they encouraged wearing masks. Yes, they encouraged social distancing. Yes, they encouraged hygiene. And so should we. And yes, we ought to take steps to deal with the most vulnerable populations, such as the elderly and those with underlying health conditions. But the idea of a one-size-fits-all approach really doesn't make any sense. Now, moving beyond your three initial recommendations, as a candidate, Joe Biden proposed certain tax and social initiatives. What's your position on his taxation policy? Well, first, there's absolutely no question that in order to restore fiscal sustainability, we're going to have to have additional revenues. There's just no way that you're going to be able to grow your way out of this problem. And by the way, not all tax cuts stimulate the economy and very, very few tax cuts pay for themselves. That's just a fact. And so what we have to recognize is, is that while our primary problem is a spending problem, there's no question, the fact that spending is growing much faster than revenues, we are gonna have to have additional revenues. The question is, what's the best way to achieve those revenues in a way that doesn't undercut economic growth while improving equity? And at the same time, we have to recognize that President-elect Biden, I think we can call him that now, even though things aren't uh, certified yet, he's likely to be the next president of the United States. While he's calling for additional revenues, he's also calling for spending that is far in excess of the additional revenues that he's calling for. So as a result, our already unsustainable situation would be even more unsustainable. And candidly, neither presidential candidate 
had a credible plan to A, reprioritize and reduce projected spending, B, reform social insurance programs to make them sustainable and secure, and thirdly, to be able to engage in appropriate tax reforms that will generate more revenues in an equitable fashion. Well, I totally agree with you on that. You know, when you talk about new spending programs, one of the things that seems to be getting a push right now is the forgiveness of student loans. How do you see that as being functional or non-functional in our current economic circumstance? It's one thing to provide lower interest rates and additional flexibility on repayment. Forgiveness is a different story. One of the things that we have to recognize is that not all universities are equal, not all degrees are equal. We need to do a better job of deciding what we want to incent than we do right now. And the other thing that we need to recognize is that not everybody's bound for college. And that one of the things that we need is we need more people in the trades. One can earn a very good living and raise a family with a good quality of life being in the trades. And we need to learn from some other countries, such as Germany, who try to do a much better job of matching broad-based societal needs with individual desires and abilities, and don't just focus on college, but also focus on other occupations and trade schools and things of that nature to try to be able to help. Frankly, I'm fine with two years of free either community college education or some type of trade school, if you will. But I think the idea that we're going to provide broad-based student loans and or student loan relief just because somebody gets a four-year degree from any college for any degree doesn't make a lot of sense. Dave, we're going to take a quick break and we'll talk about your economic and political recommendations when we come back. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers is the only association of nonpartisan election reform leaders, organizations, and industry professionals dedicated to increasing electoral competition and voter choice. Learn more at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back. My guest is the Honorable David M. Walker, former Comptroller General of the United States, currently a distinguished professor at the United States Naval Academy, and the author of the new book, America in 2040, Still a Superpower. Dave, you touch upon a lot of issues in your book. Let's touch on a few key ones here. What's your feeling about trade, where it is and where it needs to go? Well, we need free trade, but we need fair trade. And while in theory, one can get a better deal if you're the largest economy in the world, namely the United States, based on nominal GDP, when you end up negotiating on a bilateral basis rather than a multilateral basis, I think based upon today's world, we need to re-engage in more multilateral negotiations on trade. One example is 15 countries, including China, just engaged in a multilateral trade agreement dealing with Asia, and the United States is not part of that agreement. That's a matter of concern. But as I say, free trade is important, but fair trade is important too. What's your position on energy? For the first time in a long time, North America is energy independent. That's obviously very good from an economic standpoint. It's also very good from a national security standpoint because it means that we don't have to engage in actions in very unstable parts of the world because of our dependency on imported oil. It's critically important that we maintain energy independence for a variety of reasons. At the same point in time, we clearly want to transition so that we end up moving more and more towards cleaner and renewable fuels in the future. But in doing so, we've got to balance 
the economic considerations of the country and its citizens with the environmental considerations. We do know, however, that not only are we on a fiscally unsustainable path, we're on an environmentally unsustainable path, and we need to take both very seriously. From a standpoint of time frame, the largest consumer of oil in the world is the United States military. So when we look at projections of by 2025, we'll be off fossil fuel and so forth. What's the reality? How long would it take the military to move to different sources of energy to still be able to protect the United States? It would take longer than that. But the simple fact of the matter is we're also going to have to look at our force structure, our footprint, and our platforms moving forward. And I think looking forward, we're going to see that with the new domains of threat, namely cyber, space, and bio, and when you look at the visibility of the battlefield today, or the potential battlefield today, we're going to see more unmanned systems, both above the water, under the water, in the air. And I think we're going to see smaller, but more mobile and more lethal force structures than we do in the past. And that will end up helping to reduce energy needs, all of those factors. And what are your insights on personal security? We have 50% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Very, very many of them have limited, if any, savings. What do we need to do in that area? Well, unfortunately, COVID-19 has made a bad situation worse. It's shown that millions and millions of Americans don't have adequate savings to be able to deal with an unexpected tragic event like COVID-19, where many people were put out of work and didn't have adequate savings to deal with it. The government's tried to take a number of steps to deal with that through payments to individuals, in some cases payments to people that never should have gotten a payment, like myself, somebody who continued to be able to teach at the Naval Academy, and yet my wife and I got a check. At the same point in time, the government also did things with regard to unemployment benefits that in some circumstances actually paid people more for not working than otherwise they would have made if they were working, which is a very perverse incentive. But I think people need to recognize that government has grown too big, promised too much, and that people have to assume more personal responsibility for their future. They need to plan, save, invest, preserve. Social Security and Medicare are important programs. They're going to remain, but they're going to get reformed. They were never intended to be the sole source of income for people in their retirement. They have to be able to recognize that reality and plan accordingly. The other thing they need to recognize is that tax rates will probably never be lower than they are today. They're only going one way, and that's up. And the longer that we wait to put our finances in order, in all likelihood, the higher taxes are going. It's just math. For us to be able to achieve fiscal responsibility and sustainability, what are your recommendations? Well, first, we have to recognize that we're not going to achieve it through the normal order. Over half of the book is about sensible solutions. What do we need to do to be able to change our budget process controls? What do we need to do to reform our tax system, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, health care, defense, government organization operations, and even political reforms? Specific illustrative solutions, a vast majority of which have been validated by supermajority groups of voters in two critical swing states, one in the North and one in the South. And one of the things that we're going to also have to recognize that it's not going to get done through the normal congressional process. And that's where I come back to one of the things I mentioned before. 
the need for a statutory fiscal sustainability commission that the president would advocate for, the Congress would enact into law, the president would sign it, that would end up engaging the American people in a much more substantive way than it's ever been done in the past, and then come back and make a series of recommendations in all the areas that I've talked about and that are covered in the book and more, and that would be guaranteed an up or down vote. That's what we need. Hopefully that's what we'll get. And Dave, currently we have mandated budgets, which we historically ignore at the congressional level. Do you think one or two years is a better approach to the budgetary process? I'm for biannual budgeting. Uh, Most of the states have biannual budgeting. I'm also for having two budgets. One is a operating budget and the other of which is a capital budget. One of the problems we have right now is we have an integrated budget, which means that we treat investments the same as consumption spending, which means that we're not making enough investments in things like infrastructure, basic research that we need to, that can help to grow the economy, help improve our competitive posture, help generate additional opportunities, employment opportunities, and have multi-generational benefits. At the same point in time, that's why I think we need to move away from focusing on annual deficits and gross debt levels and the debt ceiling limit, which hasn't worked, and we need to focus on debt to GDP like a laser, specific targets, triggers, and enforcement mechanisms if these levels aren't hit, where there are consequences and what the public can see those consequences in the form of either dividends if people do better than they're supposed to do or surcharges if they don't meet the targets. Dave, what do you think the most critical political recommendations are that we should be pursuing? Well, I come back to the thing that I said to begin with. We need to defeat COVID-19. We need a plan because if you don't have a plan, all you have is prayer. Don't get me wrong. I'm for prayer, but I want prayer and a plan. China has one. They're executing on it. It's a tremendous comparative disadvantage for us. And furthermore, we need some type of a mechanism like a fiscal sustainability commission to be able to put our finances in order. And once we do that, then frankly, the Fed will be able to act in a more sustainable fashion because right now they're doing things that in normal course they wouldn't do and shouldn't do. And on a yes-no basis, term limits, should we have them or no? I'm for 12-year term limits. What are your thoughts on congressional districting, currently known as gerrymandering? I'm for fundamentally reassessing that because What we need is more independent processes for drawing congressional districts so we maximize the number of competitive districts consistent with the Voting Rights Act rather than minimizing the number of competitive districts consistent with the voting rights. Competition is good. It's one of the things that made America great. We need more of it in our political process. Should we maintain or end closed primaries? I'm for integrated and open primaries. 42% of registered voters in this country are unaffiliated, as I am. They don't have an opportunity to let their voice be heard in many states until the general election. And then they look at what the options are and say, this is all I got. They need to have a voice. And one of the things that also needs to happen is we need to move from being bipartisan to being transpartisan, which means that with regard to major commissions and things of that nature, it's not just achieving balance between Democrats and Republicans. It's allowing the 42 percent of the voters who are unaffiliated to have a seat at the table because they're the ones that decide elections. Excellent recommendations. Dave, in the limited amount of time we have left, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and pick up a copy of your new book? Well, I'm on Facebook, Dave Walker. and You can find former U.S. Comptroller General 
a distinguished visiting professor at the Naval Academy. I'm also on LinkedIn. I live in Alexandria, Virginia, if that helps you. But as far as the book, you can find it either online at Author House, A-U-T-H-O-R-H-O-U-S-E, which is the publisher, Amazon, or Barnes & Noble. It's available hardcover, paperback, and in electronic form. Well, Dave, as always, it's been a pleasure. I highly recommend your new book, American 2040, Still a Superpower. I think it asks the right question, and it provides insight into what's driving our country's current trajectory and what needs to be done to make the necessary course correction. Once things settle down politically, I'd love to have you back on the show to discuss whether we're heading in the right direction. And Dave, as always, thank you for joining me on Deconstructed. Happy to do it, TJ. All the best. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.